Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. He came up to me, looking for a car? Have I got a deal for you? You know that? I usually avoid smarmy salesmen. And I really, but I needed wheels, and when he came up, I really wanted to give him a smart-alecky comeback, but I resisted. I didn't. Instead, I found a car quickly. I needed wheels quick, so I found a car that would work for me. I read the price tag, and then I made my offer. It wasn't what was on the price tag. I came there as an equal. He had something I wanted, a car. I had something he wanted, money. So we're coming on equal footing. But he, I made an offer. He had to go talk with the manager, and after they waited, they probably sat there watching their mark. What's it? They say it's got to be three and a half minutes. Okay, go back, tell him this. And he came back with a, with a counter offer, and then I broke protocol and made a counter counter offer. And then he came back. At this time, he, they waited around five minutes or something before he came back, and and with a counter, counter, counter offer. And we finally, it kept going back and forth till we got to the point where neither one of us was happy. You know, uh, it was, I was going to be paying more than I really wanted to, and he was getting a whole lot less than he wanted to, so I figured if neither of us are happy, it must be about right. Okay? Then it had to go to the bank. Would they finance the loan? This time, there were no deals, no offers and counter-offers. It, was, it came from on high that the loan was granted, but with certain conditions, X amount of money, X amount of interest, payable monthly, or else, dire consequences, and then take it or leave it. And so we signed what we call a contract. In the ancient world, in biblical world, it would have been what we call a conditional suzerainty covenant. We've been discovering some things about the nature and the character of God as he's revealed himself at formative moments in the history of Israel and through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. We don't really have the words to describe him, and the most important ones we have are untranslatable. How, how could it be any otherwise that the almighty an eternal God, so different and far above this world, well, that we just don't have words for him. That's about right. He's the holy God, transcendent and different from this world. He's also the God of steadfast love, who in his passion for his creatures, that's you and me, 
bridges the distance between himself and this world to be imminent among us in the full weight of his glory. He reveals himself as the one who is both loving and righteous. Both loving and righteous. That in the act of freely giving himself for the life of the world, he both upholds his righteous judgment on our sin and offers a merciful redemption for us through Christ. How dreadful is our sin? Just look at the price of the cross and then you'll see it. Then you'll know it. Mostly, what we've been looking at in the Old Testament are stories of divine appearances and what we might call early creeds, creedal statements. One of these creeds, a formal statement of what Israel knows about God, in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9, and we've looked at that already to learn something about his love, but I want to highlight another aspect of that here this morning. Deuteronomy 7, starting at verse 7. It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The Lord chooses and his people, he redeems them out of the house of bondage because, yes, he loves them passionately, but even more because he keeps his word from generation to generation. His faithfulness and loyalty are grounded in his Covenant. He is a God who keeps covenant. So, what is a covenant? The Hebrew word for covenant is berit, B E R I T H, for those who are taking notes on this. Berit. What it means, well, what it means depends on where you think it came from. In Eastern Semitic, such as in Assyrian, baru means to bind or tie together. It can mean a fetter, you know, like a, a, when a, a captive's hands are tied. Or uh, it could be a business deal or a political treaty. You are tied together with somebody. In, that's in Eastern Semitic. In Western Semitic, like Canaanite and similar dialects, in Western Semitic, 
barat means cutting, which scholars think could mean a pact sealed by sacrifice. And for this, they cite God's covenant with Abram in a very puzzling story in Genesis chapter 15. There, God tells Abram to prepare a series of sacrifices, and all are to be cut in half and laid out, one on this side, one on that side, sort of mirror image, lay out these sacrifices. And then we read, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. And when the sun, it goes on, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot And a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Well, we have no idea what to make of this whole passing through the sacrifice thing. Now, keep in mind, this is a dream vision. While Abram is lying unconscious before God, there in dreadful darkness. Now, from the same century, from the western Semitic city of Mari, we find a treaty which refers to the ceremony of killing the ass. I don't know, scholars quote that in this context, but we have no idea what that's supposed to mean. Maybe it's the same kind of thing, we don't know. And then a millennium later, the prophet Jeremiah accuses the leaders of Judah for making a covenant (coughs) to release all the Hebrew slaves by cutting a calf in half and passing between its parts. But then they didn't keep that covenant either. And that is all we know about it. So we're expected to explain something we don't understand by pointing to something we don't understand. Is there something wrong here or is it just me? So let's stick to what we do know about ancient covenants. There were two kinds of covenants. The parity covenant that was between equals, and the suzerainty covenant between a ruler and a people. The parity, that's if you and I make a a buddy agreement, gentleman's agreement, that's a parity covenant, or a suzerainty from, from above and below socially or in power. Both both types of covenant could be either conditional or unconditional. If it's unconditional, it's just an agreement that you're making, and it's going to stand no matter what. Conditional means that, uh, like, for example, unconditional would have no stipulations. It might be a pledge of friendship and cooperation or something like that. And then a conditional one would have specific obligations. Most, most suzerainty covenants between a ruler and a people are conditional. The king is going to do this and that or has done this and that. His subjects commit 
to obedience, uh, financial tribute maybe, uh, military support, things like that. Now a covenant, whether it was a parity covenant or a sovereignty covenant, and whether it was conditional or unconditional, it could be ratified in one of three ways. By a simple oath, by a meal together, or by a blood sacrifice. By oath, in an oath, maybe the gods or heaven and earth or whatever would be called upon to witness this oath and uphold, uh, uphold its terms with inviolable justice. You make a verbal commitment. By food, eating together was a solemn ritual that created the lifelong bond between a host and a guest. To turn on someone with whom you had broken bread was unforgivable treachery and betrayal. Or by blood, sacred blood, marked a covenant as a matter of life and death and a solemn commitment before God. Now turn with me, please, armed with that knowledge so far, to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24. We'll start at verse 3. And I'll wait while the pages rattle. That's okay. Exodus 24, we'll start at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up twelve pillars corresponding to the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed oxen as offerings of well-being to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he dashed against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, See the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also they beheld God, and they ate and drank. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written 
for their instruction. So God descends upon the mountain to offer a covenant to Moses and to the Hebrews. This, all of this is an act of a formal meeting for a covenant. It's a suzerainty covenant. An offer from one of greater power to one of lesser or no power. God never comes to you as an equal among equals. He is not. He always comes as the Creator and as the Lord of heaven and earth. He acts unilaterally. He takes the initiative to offer His chosen people a deal they can't refuse. God's covenant here is conditional. I have done this, so you do that. And if Israel will not do that, then certain punitive clauses in the small print in the contract kick in, and there will be consequences. In our story, this particular passage we've read, the stipulations are, the conditions are not listed. That's back a couple of chapters back in starting with the Ten Commandments. But we do hear about the people agreeing to the terms and conditions, what the Lord says we'll do, we'll, we'll obey it, we'll do it, we'll follow those, those requirements. They will heed and obey. And God's covenants with, he, with, with people, with humans, offer promises and assurance, but they require certain actions or standards from us. And then, with unusual formality, the covenant is ratified three times. Did you notice that? It's ratified three times in all three ways. First, by oath. We'll do it. We'll vow to obey the covenant. Then it is sealed in blood and celebrated with a covenant meal in the presence of God. It is a thrice-binding agreement. There is no more solemn agreement in the Middle East than that. We also know that all ancient covenants were built a certain way. They're just built a certain way. Uh, in the Hittite capital, the Hittite empire that was in now what's now central Turkey in the highlands, in the capital city of Hattusa, Archaeologists found a trove of clay tablets from around 1500 B.C. This is a couple hundred years after Abraham, including many covenant treaties. And all of them contain the six same six parts in the same order. And we find the same six parts in the Old Testament law, in God's covenant with Israel. There is a preamble. The preamble 
states the name and title of the sovereign who is offering the covenant to his subject, to his vassal. That's why we read the Ten Commandments starting first, I am the Lord your God. That's the preamble. Who's the king? Who's the one in control? Who's the one offering the covenant? I am the Lord your God. (coughs) Sorry. Then there is an historical prologue. That's a list of benevolent things that the that the sovereign has done for his subjects. Uh, in secular covenants, that might be giving them laws, defending them against their enemies, uh, giving them justice, and so on. In the same way, we see, for example, in the Ten Commandments, after it says, I am the Lord your God, that's the preamble, it continues who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's what God has done for his people already. Those are his benevolent acts. That's the historical prologue, what God has done to deserve our covenant loyalty. You might say this is God's because of this. And then there follow the stipulations, preamble, historical prologue, and then the stipulations. That's going to require things like an oath of loyalty or paying tribute or help in time of war. And so after affirming who God is and what He's done for Israel, the Ten Commandments then continue, and they require, you shall have no other gods before me. And then it goes on, no graven images, and so forth. The stipulations. This is God's therefore. Because of this, that I, what I did to save you, therefore you do this. Then there are provisions made in every covenant for its publication and archival preservation. Uh, for example, the covenant is to be read regularly in a public forum. Uh, copies are to be deposited someplace safe for uh, safekeeping. And so, in the Old Testament, we read several times how the two tablets of the covenant were ordered to be placed in the ark. And that the book of the covenant would be kept beside the ark with it, and that the covenant law was to be read publicly at least every seven years. Then there's an appeal to witnesses to enforce the agreement, like heaven and earth, or maybe to a stone altar. In several Bible passages, heaven and earth are called upon to witness this covenant, And those 12 stone pillars that we read that Moses had set up, those were not altars. Those were pillars of witness. They they were sort of set up as a witness, as a reminder of the covenant that was made there. 
And then there are sanctions at the end, sanctions which are blessings for complying with the terms of the covenant, curses for not complying. In Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy chapters 27 through 28 and again in chapter 30, list God's blessings when the people obey and the curses that will befall them if they don't. These are all parts of a suzerainty contract. So let me summarize and pull out of this what we've learned so far and what we need to learn out of this. First, whenever God comes to offer a covenant, He comes not as an equal to you, but as the reigning Lord. He comes as the Almighty Sovereign, the Supreme Creator, the Ruler of, of all. He's the Greater One, graciously extending an offer to you, the Lesser One. You cannot initiate anything. You don't come and offer a deal to God. You don't, are not in a position to bargain with God. I don't bargain with God. That doesn't mean I won't try. Let me tell you out of my experience, it doesn't work. Just, just be forewarned, it doesn't work. So don't, don't, don't even bother to go there. So you don't make deals, you don't bargain with him. He is everything, and you, I'm sorry to say, are nothing. And you have nothing to offer that isn't already his. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. God determines all deals. Trust me, it's better that way. He is smarter than I am and you are. He, is, he knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. You can trust Him. He is trustworthy. I know the bank is not. The car dealer really is not. But God is trustworthy and you can trust any deal that God offers you. So, God determines all deals. Two, God's covenant always begins with who He is and what He has done. He begins there, not with conditions and rules. God takes the initiative to choose and to save His people. And then as a consequence, we're given certain obligations. It starts with what God has freely chosen to do for you. They're not rules when we then gives us obligations. These aren't rules that we have to follow in order for God to save us. Not things we have to do in order for God to love us. He loves and chooses and saves His people first. And our response? Our response can only be a changed life. I mean, what else? If you know you've been saved from a life of bondage and slavery, you can only be grateful. And if you're grateful, you're going to want to please Him. 
And if you want to please him, well, here are some ways to do it. Do you get it? Three, God chooses in love to come and offer his covenant to you. And he offers you himself, a divine friendship, full of hope, full of promise and future. But you cannot lay claim to his presence and promises without embracing his standards. You can't appeal to his love without his righteousness. That's been very popular today, and unfortunately we have taught our children to embrace and affirm the love of God without any standards of God. They go hand in hand. God loves me, therefore I want to please Him. You can't separate that. God will require something of you. He comes with expectations and demands, not because he just wants to control everything, because, hey, he already does. Sorry. But because he has a purpose for you and a destiny for you, and if you're going to fulfill the purpose, the wonderful purpose and destiny that God has for you, there are certain ways to go about doing it. And this is what it is. Does that make sense? Fourth, God always expects a formal ratification. He always ratifies His covenants. Covenants don't just happen. They are consciously and intentionally entered into. That means He expects on your part an oath of commitment to the integrity and principles of divine righteousness. That's your oath that comes in. Yes, Lord, I will do what you ask. Yes, Lord, I will follow where you lead. Yes, you are my Lord, which means I will do what you say. That's what Lord means, right? You're the one I listen to. You're the one I obey. Yes, Lord, I will follow where you lead. Then there is a covenant meal. And there's, there's another little detail I didn't get into a couple of weeks ago, but let me just touch on this. God's steadfast love in Hebrew is chesed. Uh, you'll remember that's C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed, is his steadfast love. And the word chesed is directly related to the Arabic word hashara, hashara. And hashara is the obligatory hospitality due to a house guest. It is the word in Arabic for a covenant meal. By his very nature of chesed, God seals the deal with eating together. Why do church people always eat when they get together? Well, there you have a theological rationale right there. 
It's not only biblical, it's the very nature of God that we eat together in the name of Jesus, that we eat together in the name of the God of Israel. We're just sealing covenants left and right. Hallelujah. <laughs> and then even when um, there's, and then there is the blood of the covenant, as we've seen in Exodus 24, and you'll see it again and again, the blood of the covenant where God seals a covenant with a blood sacrifice. Even when it is not explicitly stated in Scripture directly somewhere, it's in there, you'll find that whenever God makes a covenant, it is sealed with an oath, with a meal, and with blood. But God's covenant is different from the world's sovereignty covenants in one very important way. This is my fifth point. If you break in, in the world, in worldly covenants, if you break the, the rules, the covenant is null and void. If you break the rules, you break the conditions, the covenant is null and void, you'll never get another deal, the king will exact terrible vengeance on you. But God, how does God do this? God declares, my covenant shall stand fast, and I will never break my covenant with you. God will judge disobedience and faithfulness, yes. There will be consequence when we violate God's righteous will, yes. But man can never nullify a covenant that God has made. Because we read Deuteronomy 4, because the Lord your God is a merciful God, He will neither abandon you nor destroy you. He will not forget the covenant with your ancestors that he swore to them. And when we read, as we did in Deuteronomy 7, that God is faithful to the thousandth generation, I want you to understand that is a symbolic number. When 1,000 shows up in Scripture, it's never literal, it is symbolic. Because it starts with 10, okay? How many fingers do you have, most of you? I know there are a few carpenters here who may not be able to answer this the way they did. But you have pretty much 10. And when we count, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. 10, they're all there, right? That's complete. And so if you take 10, the number of completion, all your fingers times 10, that's completion, very complete, times 10, which is most complete, com utterly complete, which is 10 times 10 times 10, math whizzes tell me how much is that, 1 1,000 1, represents completion times completion times completion. 
So it's everything full and complete in the purpose and plan of God. It means forever. It effectively means forever. So God's covenant is a berit olam, as it's called in Hebrew, an everlasting covenant. It will never be abolished. Why? Because from the very start, it was always founded upon His sheer, undeserved grace. It's founded on grace. The prophet Jeremiah envisioned a time to come when God would reestablish His covenant with His people. Look with me, please, at Jeremiah 31. We'll start at verse 31. These are familiar words, I'm sure, or at least I hope. Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah says, in the name of the Lord, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for, because... I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Jeremiah promises a new covenant, but if you look carefully, it's not really new. It's the same covenant that God had made with them. From the very beginning, and again with Abram, and then with Jacob, and with Moses. The same covenant. But what is new is this time it's going to work. God's going to make sure that this time it's going to work. This time it will be imprinted on our souls. He will write it inside of us. It won't just be in our heads, but it's going to take root in our hearts. We will not want to violate the covenant. That's what's new. God really will be our God, and we really will be His people, not just in name, but in fact and in praxis. 
will genuinely know Him. And we will understand His heart. How and why? Because He has forgiven our sins and erases our iniquity. In God's perfect timing, the promise of Jeremiah is fulfilled when Jesus, the Son of God, took the old covenant meal of bread and wine, the Passover, and he shaped it into a new covenant meal in his body and his blood. He even calls this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. And before that very same day was ended, before that day was ended, he was beaten to a pulp and he died on a cross, a blood sacrifice to ratify that covenant. As Moses said, see the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. See the blood of the covenant. You turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to start at verse 6. We'll do a little jump in there. Uh, no, wait a minute. Yes, verse 6. Hebrews 8. Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. Now at this point, the author quotes that passage from Jeremiah that we had just read. And let me jump over that down to verse 12, where that closes. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant... He's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. Jesus mediates a better covenant. Not different in content, but different in effect. Do you hear me? Different in effect. Because God's covenant promise the first difference, God's covenant promise is extended not only to Israel and the ethnic children of Abraham alone, but through the awaited offspring of Abraham to all nations. For he said, through your offspring, singular, through your offspring, all nations shall be blessed. And the word for nations, do you know what else that means? It's the same word that means Gentiles. That through the offspring of Abraham, all Gentiles would be blessed as well. Secondly, because the covenant sacrifice is at the same time a sacrifice for sins. Both a covenant sacrifice and sin sacrifice in one. 
Our failings and our faults do not interfere with the stipulations of the covenant. The covenant is not broken by our weakness or our human inability to measure up to the standards of God's perfect righteousness. And thirdly, because the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to every believer, and so the will and the law of God is within us, written on our hearts in the whisper of God's own Spirit within. That's what makes it new. And that's what makes it powerful in your life and in mine. So it's ratified with a meal. I probably should have waited till the first Sunday of, of the month for that when we're having communion. But that's our ratification meal. It's ratified with a meal. It's ratified in blood. Now it awaits only your oath, your promise as you declare before earth and heaven that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is, that He, he rules and commands you you will obey Him in all things. So if you're looking for a new and different life, if you're looking for purpose and for direction, if you're looking for God, boy, does Jesus have a deal for you. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege to come before You. We don't come as equals. We never will. We never can. We come as subjects, as vassals. We come as beggars, reliant upon Your grace, reliant upon Your steadfast love. We even rely on Your Spirit to even begin to think about fulfilling the terms of your righteousness, the conditions of your covenant. Receive us. Receive us as grateful subjects, eager to please you and do your will, eager to show to the world the kind of gracious, merciful, and kind God that we serve through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.